We now come to One Kings. We last time covered the, uh, you know, like the, the actual kingship of um, King David. We now move beyond him to the um, other kings of Israel and Judah, as you'll see later. So One Kings and chapter one. Now at this juncture, King, King David is now an old man, very old, soon to die. And uh, he, he can't keep warm in bed at night. And his, his servants supply him with a young girl called Abishag so that he can cuddle her in bed and keep warm. This isn't sexual relations. It's, it's you know, when a king has a hot water bottle, he does it properly. And, and that's, <laughs> that's kind of what this is, literally. And uh, so, you know, Abishag becomes his, his personal hot water bottle. So, so this is how old David is. Now, this is how frail he is. And, um, and he's made it quite clear that his successor, because he had numerous sons, but, and numerous sons through numerous wives as well, but he'd made it quite clear that it was Solomon, now remember Solomon was Bathsheba's son, Bathsheba whom he committed the sin with, um, that it was Solomon, his son through Bathsheba, who was to succeed him as king. And that this was God's choice for the messianic line to continue through. Because remember, King David was in the messianic line. Messiah was to be a son of David. And so David makes it quite clear that the messianic line was to continue through Solomon and that it was Solomon who was to succeed him as kings. But at this point, one of his other sons, called Adonijah, now, remember Absalom last time? We saw how Absalom decided to have a coup d'etat against his own father and eventually died for it. Well, now, Adonijah, who was David's son through his wife, Haggith, decided that he should be the rightful successor. So we've got a bit of history repeating itself now, only it doesn't lead actually to battle. And, um, and it's interesting that in, in, in verse 6, concerning Adonijah, we read this. His father, that is King David, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? So, fundamentally, we've got another spoiled brat here. And it's ironic that David, like Eli, unlike Samuel, also failed to, to, you know, sort his children out, discipline his children. He didn't do it. You remember Eli the priest didn't. His sons were a scandal. He was laid aside and replaced by Samuel. Well, Samuel was David's mentor. He was the prophet who inaugurated David into kingship. And yet, we saw as well, didn't we, that Samuel failed to discipline his children properly. Failed to give them the proper upbringing that they should have done. And he raised little monsters as well. And now, here we have a blatant state. I mean, we saw Absalom last time. I mean, he, 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 he was hardly your idea of the perfect son, was he? And now, here's another son of David trying to take over the throne. And, uh, and we see here a direct link that David had failed in his responsibility as a parent. And it shows us how important that is. 
So we've got Adonijah, who is now proclaiming himself to be king. So he knows that his father wants his brother Solomon, but he's saying, no, this is going to be me. Now, he gets the backing of Joab. Now, do you remember Joab was the commander of David's army, so Joab was David's right-hand man. And he also gets the backing of Abiathar, the priest. Abiathar was kind of like the high priest during David's time. Um, but Nathan the prophet and Zadok, who was like the other high priest, they remain loyal to David and Solomon. So you've got this division at the top, you know, over who's going to be the successor. So what happens is that Adonijah throws this massive party and he invites all the kind of like your big wigs of Israel, anyone who had influence. If Hello magazine had been, you know, on the go at that point in Israel's history, then Hello's photographer would have been there, you know. Because anyone who was anyone got invited to Adonijah's party so that he could proclaim that he was going to be the next king. Now, Nathan, the prophet, now he, he was the, the prophet who was loyal to David, Nathan gets wind of what's happening and he goes to Bathsheba and tells her what's going on. And they come to the conclusion, well the problem is that David doesn't know about this, you know, he's old, he's got out of touch. So they then inform King David and say, look, Adonijah is proclaiming himself to be the king and you've said that Solomon is going to be the king. And, um, and so what they say is, look, we've got to act really fast here to get Solomon um, enthroned as king. And uh, in, in, in verse 35, David, and this is worth noting, he says, I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. So again, there is David's express intention that Solomon is going to be the king. But notice that Solomon is going to be appointed ruler over Israel and Judah. And do you remember the north-south divide that we noted last time, the very beginnings of it starting to happen? So much so that David is here virtually aware that there are two kingdoms and that we're going to see tonight how the real divide between the north and the south, Judah and Israel, happens. So what happens uh, now is that Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, these are the ones who are loyal to David, they take Solomon uh, down to Gihon uh, Gihon being where the tabernacle was, all right, and uh, they take him down there and they anoint him as king officially, so that the whole land knows that um, Adonijah has been beaten to it, all right, and uh, that Solomon is now the king. Now, Adonijah, whose party was in full swing still, this this was a real party, went on for days and days and days, uh, was informed by Abiathar's son, Abiathar was the high priest who was on Adonijah's son, uh, side, uh, was in, in, in informed by him that Solomon had now been enthroned king. Um, at, at this point his guests decide it's time to leave. Uh, because of course suddenly Adonijah was not the person to be seen with anymore, was he? Solomon was. So they all hightail it down to Solomon. I mean, this is fickle friendship indeed. So the party comes to an end and everyone hightails it. And Adonijah, um, what he does, he heads down to the tabernacle and he goes inside and he, he, he grabs the horns of the altar and he claims protection. The idea being, you know, he feared that he'd be put to death because, I mean, after all, he'd, although it hadn't turned into bloodshed, he had committed treason. He declared himself to be the king when he wasn't the king. And, um, you know, and so he goes into the tabernacle and claims, uh, you know, sort of protection. And, 
And what Solomon does is, is that he, he grants him safety. Solomon says, well, look, okay, you are my brother, I'm my half-brother, at any rate. And, uh, and he says, I grant you safety, I grant you pardon, I won't do anything to you as long as you behave yourself. So basically, Solomon is saying to him, uh, you know, look, you know, be good, keep your nose clean, and you'll be okay, I won't take vengeance on you. Then we, we come into chapter 2, and uh, we have here kind of Sol uh, King David's, like his final words to Solomon. I mean, you know, his, his final words of advice to, to Solomon, who's, uh, you know, who is now the king. And um, he urges him firstly to be faithful to the Lord, because King David was, and, and, and now father to son, saying that that's the most important thing, be faithful to the Lord. Um, David tells him that he has to deal with Joab. Now, you'll remember we saw last time that um, Joab had committed two murders. Um, you'll remember a guy called Abner. Now, Ishbosheth, who was Saul's descendant, was proclaimed king in kind of in competition to David and set up a kingdom up in the north in Israel. And, uh, and you'll remember that his commander was a guy called Abner. And eventually Abner switched his allegiance to King David. He sort of saw the light. And David was pleased to have him on his side. And, um, and Joab um, murdered him. And then Amasar, and when Absalom rebelled against David and tried to kill David and take over, his commander-in-chief was called Amasar, and David welcomed him into his crowd. Well, Joab killed him as well, murdered him. And of course, the reason that Joab murdered these two guys is because he was looking out for his own position. He was the commander of the army, and here was David being forgiving and also doing the politically expedient thing because both these guys, you remember, had ties up in the north and David was trying to hold the kingdom together, prevent this north-south divide from really taking off. And so even though these guys had been against him, they had influence in the north and so David accepted them back. One through Ishbosheth and the rebellion that he led i.e. one of Saul's successors, and Amasar, who was Absalom's chief, i.e. King David's son's chief. And, um, and so Abner, had, uh, sorry, um, Joab had murdered those two, so now King David says to Solomon, you must deal with Joab for that. And uh, then thirdly, um, King David said, you must uh, sh uh, sort out Shimei. Now, do you remember we saw last time when David was uh, fleeing from uh, Absalom's coup d'etat, right? You know, when, when Absalom marched into Jerusalem, David marched out with his army and went on the run for a while. And uh, do you remember Shimei who, who started throwing stones at David and mocking him? And do you remember that, um, you know, David's men wanted to chop his head off? And David said, no, don't, you know, let's, let's show him mercy, blah, blah, blah. Well, now King David says to Solomon, I want you to... Um, to sort him out as well. Um, and then, then fourthly, uh, th there was a guy called Barzillai. He, he was, um, came up in 2 Samuel, but we didn't actually mention him last time because we were running out of, um, 
you know, out of uh, time. But uh, at the same time that David was fleeing from Absalom, about the time when Shimei was hurling his insults, there was this other old man called Barzillai, and he supported David. You know, he helped him out a great deal. And uh, what David said to him is, he said, look, when this is over, come and live with me in the palace. And Barzillai was an old man. He says, well, you know, you've asked me a few years too late. There's no point, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to enjoy it now. Well, what David now says to Solomon is that, um, you know, to reward the support of Barzillai, um, that he was to show kindness to Barzillai's sons. So, they're the last words uh, of King David to Solomon, and uh, then David dies. So, so the absolute end of King David at that point. Now what happens next is Adonijah pops up again, uh, the younger brother who declared himself to be king. Solomon showed him mercy, said, keep your nose clean and I, I won't hurt you. Well, Adonijah decides to make another play. Some people can't take a hint, you know, he decides to make another play for the throne. And the way he does it, it's quite subtle, is that he asked um, permission from Solomon to marry Abishag. Abishag, do you remember David's hot water bottle? Now, in him doing that, that was sneaky. And the reason it, I, I, I mean, Solomon saw through it, but, but it was sneaky because in you had two things in conjunction. First of all, Adonijah was Solomon's older son. Uh, sorry, older brother. So there was a definite argument in some people's mind that because Adonijah was the older son and not Solomon, that Adonijah ought to be king. Now that, in conjunction with had he married Abishag, who was a member of King David's harem, even though King David was now dead, had he married her, those two factors, being the oldest son and now married to one of King David's harem, would have strengthened his claim to the throne a great deal and would have probably led to lots of people in Israel actually queuing up behind him and saying the throne should be yours, we'll fight for you. So he's manoeuvring, he's making another play um, for the throne. Um, however, Solomon sees right through him, knows exactly what he's doing. And at this point, one of David's mighty men, one of the soldiers who had fought with King David for many years um, and was loyal to Solomon, now sort of becomes Solomon's right-hand man, a guy called Benaiah. And Solomon has him kill Adonijah for the tempted treason. So Adonijah is now put to death, he's now killed, uh, because it was treason. Um, Benaiah then executes Joab. Now, who, who by that point, like Adonijah before him, was now clinging onto the horns of the altar in the, um, in the tabernacle, fearing that his day had come. Well, come it had. It didn't do him any good. He was executed um, for those murders. And um, um, Benaiah is now made the commander of the Israeli army in, um, Ahab, in Joab's place. Now, the next thing that happens is Abiathar, the high priest, is now removed from the priesthood by Solomon. Now, he was the high priest, because there was two, there was him and Zadok. Abiathar here was the high priest who backed Adonijah's claim to the throne. So now Solomon, as it were, 
de decloaks him, or what decloaks, that's what Klingon, Klingon birds of prey do, they decloak, don't they? What's the word, Def defrock, or whatever? Anyway, stops him being a priest and exiles him from Israel, so, um, you know, Abiathar the high priest is now removed from the priesthood and he's um, exiled. And uh, this, interestingly, back to Eli now, do you remember who was replaced by Samuel because he didn't discipline his sons? Well, at the time that God replaced Eli with Samuel, there was a prophecy to Eli that uh, his family would be removed forever from being priests. Abiathar was a direct descendant of Eli. And because Abiathar is now exiled, it means that none of his sons would ever again be priests in Israel. And so here, a prophecy to Eli all those years before is now fulfilled with the um, exclusion of Abiathar from the priesthood and from remaining in Israel. And again, remember, Abiathar had backed Adonijah in his play um, for the throne. And Zadok, who was the priest who backed Solomon, is now made like the high priest of Israel in his place. And uh, now, now the next thing to be dealt with was old Shimei. Right? Now remember, he's one who threw stones at King David and hurled insults at him. And uh, what Solomon does with him is that he, um, he makes a decree that he is to never venture outside of Jerusalem. So that's his punishment. He's like under what you might call not house arrest, but city arrest. And, uh, I mean, you know, that could be quite, quite a difficult thing, because, I mean, often people were a bit dependent on travelling for business or whatever, but he's kind of, you know, a decree goes out and Solomon says, you are, you know, not to go outside Jerusalem. I, I want you where I can see you all the time. That's, that's basically what it is. But um, three years later, um, Shimei goes out of Jerusalem. He goes on a business trip. And um, Solomon finds that out and has Benaiah execute him. And so with that, the kingship of Solomon is now firmly established. All right? There are no challenges to the throne. Uh, you know, there's no kind of, you know, what you might call rats eating away in the undergrowth or anything like that. Solomon is now firmly established as the king of Israel. Now, in chapter 3, uh, Solomon enters into a treaty with, with Pharaoh, Pharaoh being the king of Egypt, obviously, and in, in so doing, marries Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we, we have here the, the, the first sign of the seeds that were eventually going to become Solomon's downfall and we'll be back to that later. But at this time, he was fully committed to the Lord as his, as his father David had been. So what we've got here really is Israel's golden age, all right? You know, that the kingdom is at peace, because remember, David's kingship had war, didn't it? You know, as a judgment for what he did in regards to Bathsheba, etc., etc. And we, we've really got Israel's golden age here. And, um, and, and the Lord appears now to Solomon in a dream and invites him to ask anything of him that he wants. Uh, you know, 
literally the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and says, you name it, what do you want? You name it and I'll give it to you. And what Solomon asked for, it wasn't riches, not fame, not a long life. These are the things that one might have duly asked for, you know, if God is saying, you name it and I'll give it to you. But Solomon, what he does is he asks the Lord for wisdom, for great wisdom. He's in his early 20s and he's the king, the leader of God's people. He knows he's got an awesome task in front of him. And so he prays for the wisdom of the Lord. Remember, he really is like David before him. He's a committed believer. He's completely sold out to the Lord. So he says, Lord, I want, I need your wisdom. And the Lord was so pleased with this, you know, that Solomon asked for wisdom and not riches or honour or a long life, that what God says, I'm going to give you my wisdom, but I'm going to give you riches and honour and a long life as well. Because you ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you the whole lot. And, uh, you know, this, this was how pleased the Lord was with Solomon for asking for wisdom. And it's at this point you get the story of um, the two prostitutes with their baby, which is given as an example of, uh, you know, why wisdom was needed when you were king and, uh, you know, the way in which it worked through Solomon because you were the law, you were the final authority and, uh, you know, a king at this point would sit, you know, sort of like in judgment, you know, like the court and uh, people would bring various cases, litigation to him and he would decide. And what happens at this point is that two prostitutes are brought to him and uh, one's got a live baby and one's got a dead baby and uh, and what's happened is that one of the prostitutes says that, you know, that what happened, we both gave birth and, you know, we've got new babies. And, um, but what happened was that, that sort of like the other night, she was sleeping with her baby and she suffocated it. And I woke up in the morning and she'd taken my baby and put her dead baby in its place. So the woman with the dead baby is saying, she's got my baby. And the woman with the baby who's alive is saying, no, this is my baby, you see. And Solomon has, you know, and they're both prostitutes, and Solomon has to decide. And so what he does is he says, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, let's have the live baby, I'll cut it in half, in half, half each. Now, of course, what happens is, immediately one of the prostitutes just goes absolutely bananas and says, no, let her keep it. Whereas the other one is, yeah, all right, that sounds... And the point was that in Solomon suggesting that, immediately the woman who really emotionally responded immediately and would have rather given the baby away than have that happen, Solomon knew that that was a real mother. And so he said, right, give the baby to her. It's her baby, see? So that was just an example of wisdom. And, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, his wisdom is, 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 is kind of, you know, became legendary, as we're going to see. But, but that was the wisdom of Solomon. And that was the kind of the wisdom, the fairness, the justice with which he ruled in Israel. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, that is kind of the wisdom and the justice and, you know, that, that is to be in the church, obviously, you know, but I mean, God is, is, is fair, absolutely just. In chapter 4, we have details of, um, 
you know, sort of like the administration under his reign, officials, we get lists of them, royal provisions, etc., etc. Uh, no point going into that. Uh, and then the fact that everyone lived in peace and safety. Throughout the reign of Solomon, everyone was secure. There was no anarchy, no rebellion in the streets, all right. And, um, and we're given a, a, a few kind of, um, you know, sort of details here about his, uh, you know, sort of cleverness and wisdom and learning. And we're told here that, that he spoke 3,000 proverbs in his life. Uh, he wrote 1,005 songs. Um, and he, he, he was able to teach botany and zoology and all about birds and animals, reptiles and fish. I mean, he, he, he was, you know, a real adept teacher in all those things. So he was a great artist, a great philosopher and a great scientist, you know, a real naturalist. The kind of a, a David Bellamy and David Attenborough rolled into one. So, therefore, there were times when he spoke like this, whereas there were others when he spoke like this because there are aspidistras everywhere, you see. And, and, you know, he was kind of a, a cross between, you know, David Bellamy, David Attenborough, rolled into one. And, and, and men of all nations came to hear his learning. He'd give lectures and, and dignitaries from all over the then known world would come to hear him teach on various subjects, be it philosophy, botany or whatever. Um, now, chapters 5 to 7, we get the building of the temple. As you remember, King David would be given all the kind of, you know, well, look, here's how it's to be built, blah, blah, blah. But um, it was Solomon who actually had the temple built. So chapters 5 to 7, you have all the details, the building of the temple, uh, the building of his palace as well. He had a magnificent palace and a big administrative complex, but obviously, the, you know, the, the important bit there being the actual temple. And uh, so, so now the temple is built, and, and so for the first time, God is living in a house with them. You know, I mean, when they were in the wilderness, they lived in tents, so God lived in a tent. But now they're really settled in the land, they're living in houses, so now God lives in a house. You see, God, God lives where his people lives. He lives where we live. He lives with us, you know, with us, you see. And so now Israel have a temple. And, um, and in chapter 8, the... Um, the Ark of the Covenant is taken into this newly completed temple and also the, the, the tabernacle, which, which has now been sort of like, you know, taken down, it's been disassembled now, that is taken into the temple as well. And once that has been done, the, the, the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the, kind of like the presence of God. Remember the Shekinah glory through the wilderness, it led them as, as, as cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Well, the Shekinah glory now comes in to the temple and, um, you know, fills the temple. So it's a, a picture of God moving in to the temple. And uh, this is followed by Solomon pronouncing a blessing on the people and, 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 and doing some teaching, reminding them how God promised to David about a temple and how it was all being fulfilled. And, uh, and then Solomon prays in you know, various ways and, and the temple is sort of dedicated to the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we, we read that on this occasion, there are 120 priests who were sounding trumpets. 
So as the Shekinah glory moved in, there are 120 priests sounding out the trumpets, you know, kind of like, you know, sounding out that, that God is with his people, that he's moving in. And when you tie that in with the fact that on the day of Pentecost, when the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, there was 120 of them, the imagery, the symbolism becomes clear. God lived firstly in the tabernacle, then he moved into the temple, then you'll remember that Jesus spoke of his body as being the temple, so then God dwelt in Jesus, because everything was a picture of Jesus, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, then the church, because Jesus lives in us, his people. So that's the picture. It's all the picture of Jesus being the temple of God and then because he lives in us, we are the temple. And so in the New Testament, we discover that as the church, we are the temple of God corporately, but also Paul says that individually, your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And there's the symbolism, the temple, the tabernacle, it all stood a picture of the church, God living amongst his people. Then in chapter 9, the Lord appears to Solomon a second time and uh, promises great blessing and reconfirms the kind of the messianic covenant that he made with King David. You know, saying to Solomon that, that your line will last forever, the line of David will last forever. Of course, the point is, obviously, that because Jesus was their descendant and Jesus is going to have an eternal kingship, obviously the throne of David is indeed going to carry on forever. And then the Lord speaks to him and warns him that unfaithfulness on his part and on the part of the nation as a whole would bring judgment and that even though the greatest blessing they've had so far has happened, the completed temple and God has moved in, what God says, but if there's unfaithfulness to me, then even the temple is not going to be safe. The fact that I've moved into the temple doesn't mean that the temple is always going to be there. You know, so I mean, God is saying, I've moved in, but if there's unfaithfulness, I can quite as easily move out. And of course, eventually, I mean, the temple got destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And of course, now in Jerusalem, it's not there at all. One does not exist at the moment. There's going to be another one, certainly. But the Lord's saying to Solomon, look, as, just as I've moved in, if there's unfaithfulness and rebellion, I can um, move out and I can bring disaster upon you. But he says, but when that disaster comes, the only reason for it is so that it will bring you to repentance so that I can restore you. So what God is saying, that when my judgment strikes, it's always to bring you back to me. It's not to let you have it. It's not purely punitive. It's reformatory. It's so that when the disaster comes on you, you'll repent and return to me so I can continue blessing you. Now, so far, we've covered 20 years of Solomon's rule, all right? Because, I mean, obviously it doesn't give loads and loads of details of his, his, his whole reign so far. But, but, but by the end of chapter 9, where we've got to now, we've, we've covered 20 years of his rule. So he, he is now 
um, in his early 40s. And you know, we read that, like, for instance, he's, there are various cities that he's built, and also he's created a navy. I mean, we're, we're just given, you know, various details about that. Now, in chapter 10, we, we have the story of the famous visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now, Sheba at that time was uh, southwest Arabia. So, you know, Arabia, that's where she came from. And, uh, and she, she came, you know, because she'd heard of his wisdom and, and he was so famous, and, and, and she came to hear it firsthand. And uh, she, she kind of, um, you know, asks him loads and loads of questions. And it doesn't matter what she asks him, he is able to answer her. And so she gets a taste of um, his wisdom. But she recognised and declared that his wisdom and his fame came from the fact that the Lord was with him. And this was the wonderful thing about it. It wasn't just hero worship. It wasn't, oh, isn't, isn't Solomon wonderful? It was the fact that all the nations that came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, they were forced to acknowledge that it was the wisdom of the Lord through him. Do you remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when it said, when he was speaking to the Jewish crowds, eventually they killed him, didn't they? But it says they could not withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. Because it's the wisdom of the Lord. You can't withstand the wisdom of the Lord. And Solomon was living proof that God was with him because his wisdom couldn't be explained in human terms. And then chapter 10 goes on to, in, in, in detail, list out and demonstrate that Solomon was also the richest man on the earth at that time. So, so God's blessing with him was um, absolutely incredible. Now, in chapter 11, and this is all the more incredible precisely because of his history so far and the blessing of God that was with him. But in chapter 11, we turn to the, the sad account of the fact that Solomon fell away from the Lord. Now we come to Solomon's downfall. Now, I hinted at the seeds earlier. And uh, he had a weakness, did Solomon, that he never really got to grips with. And uh, when we were in Judges, I called it the Samson syndrome because Samson had the same problem. And it was women. That was the downfall. And Solomon accrued, by the time he was older, accrued 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now add that up. You've, you've heard of a thousand and one Arabian nights. Well, this is 1,000 Jewish ones. And it was hard work as well. He was a busy man. Now, the problem wasn't just that he had so many wives and concubines. That of itself wasn't the problem. But the problem was that many, many of them weren't Jews. And not only were they not Jews, but they hadn't converted to the Lord. And therefore, he was going against the law of Moses. The law of Moses forbade marriage amongst the Gentiles unless the Gentiles, if a Gentile became what was called a proselyte, i.e. a convert to Judaism, then you were allowed to marry. But the problem is that many of his wives were Gentiles who hadn't converted to Judaism, so they didn't believe in the Lord. And, uh, I mean, we've already seen that he married Pharaoh's daughter, so she was an Egyptian. And he married Moabites, 
he married Ammonites, uh, he married Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. I mean, basically, the Canaanite nations, he was having a, a dabble in all of them. You know, he had women from all the Canaanite nations. And the problem is really outlined in verse 4. And it says here, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart towards other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And we can see here that that was rebellion. He was playing with fire. In the early years, he took all these wives to himself. They, they were idolaters and stuff like that. But uh, it didn't affect him. He stayed faithful to the Lord. And he reckoned he could handle it. But like the dripping of a tap, these women won his heart to false gods. They eroded his faith away bit by bit until Solomon actually fell away. And eventually the Lord proclaimed his judgment on him. And the judgment was basically this, that because he'd fallen away, God was going to tear the kingdom away from him and give it to a subordinate, which was basically what happened to Saul in the first place. Remember Saul lost the kingdom to David. But what God said to him is that for the sake of your father David, number one, it won't happen in your lifetime. It will happen in your son's lifetime. So for the sake of your father David, you won't live to see it. But secondly, for the sake of King David, it won't be the whole kingdom, all right? And God says, I'm going to leave you with one tribe the other tribes will be taken from you and they'll become another kingdom. You will be left with one tribe. And obviously, it was the tribe of Judah, Solomon's own tribe, the Messianic tribe, King David's tribe. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So for the sake of the Messianic line and the promises to King David and going right back to Abraham, blah, 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 Solomon was going to be left with one tribe, Judah which was by far the biggest tribe, but the rest of the kingdom was going to be taken and given to a subordinate in his son's lifetime. So Solomon is going to lose most of the kingdom. So can you see, now we see the north-south divide rearing its head with a vengeance, because as a result, as judgment on Solomon, Israel, the people of God in the Promised Land, are going to officially become two nations. And at this point also, adversaries are raised up against Israel in the land. Up to now, they've lived in peace. And, you know, the nations of the world have come to honour Israel. Now, enemies arise and it lists various, you know, sort of people who start to attack Israel. And Israel finds itself at war. It loses its settled peace because it's out of fellowship with God, because Solomon has fallen away. And what happens next? Because this prophecy needs to be fulfilled. And the prophecy begins to be fulfilled through a bloke called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, he was well known, he was one of Solomon's right-hand men. And Jeroboam led Solomon's labour force. So he was like the... Um, you know, like the foreman, you know, I mean, Solomon had this massive labour force to do all this building and stuff like that. Jeroboam, a very capable man, was the foreman of that labour force. And what happens now is um, that a, a prophet called Ahijah, 
goes to Jeroboam and declares to him that he was going to be a leader of the ten tribes that God would tear away from Solomon, alright? And he told him that Solomon's going to be left with Judah, but the other ten you are going to lead. Now, obviously, remember, Levi had no inheritance in the land, so the Levites weren't, in that sense, a tribe, all right? And so this, this prophet has gone to Jeroboam and said, this is what is going to happen. You are going to lead the confederation of tribes that break away um, from um, Judah and form a separate kingdom. And, uh, and as soon as Solomon finds out about this, he tries to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam has to flee, and he, he, he flees up north. And it's very soon after that, after a 40-year reign, that Solomon dies. We know, from the, uh, you know, we know from Ecclesiastes that he came back to the Lord, which is great, but he dies after a 40-year reign, and uh, the throne is then left to his son Rehoboam. So what's happened is Jeroboam, who's going to lead this new confederacy in the north, he's fled because Solomon wanted to kill him. Now Solomon has come to the end of his life, he's died, and he is succeeded by his son called Rehoboam. Now once Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is, is kind of settled in as king, remember he's still king at the moment of all the tribes, there's just the one kingdom, and um, but Jeroboam now comes before Rehoboam, all right, Solomon's son, and uh, as a kind of a representative of the people, and he comes with a delegation from all the tribes. So he's, you know, this Jeroboam is emerging as a little bit of a hero of the people. And what he does is he comes to Rehoboam and he requests that um, there be a less harsh regime than under Solomon. Because during the time of Solomon, there was very high taxation, there was a lot of conscription into the army, there was a lot of conscription into forced labour and military stuff, blah, blah, blah. So what the people are doing, and Jeroboam is acting as their spokesman, is they're saying to Rehoboam, do you think we could possibly tone it down a bit and have a bit of a less harsh regime? You know, i.e. less taxes, etc., etc. You know, can we let the belt out a bit economically, as it were? Now, Rehoboam, hearing this, turns to Solomon's advisors, because obviously all the kings had advisors, Solomon did as well. He's dead, but obviously some of his advisors are still alive. So Rehoboam, his son, turns to his father's advisors, and he says, what do you think we ought to do? And they, being men of experience and wisdom, say, well, look, the best thing to do is agree with these people, accede to their requests, for a less harsh regime, because if you do that, you'll cement their loyalty. And oh boy, we need that at the moment, because they were obviously trying to hold the kingdom together, even though they knew about this prophecy that it was going to fall apart. And, um, you know, so that was the advice that his, um, his advisors or his father's ex-advisors gave him. And, uh, but what he does is he rejects their advice, and he, he turns instead and uh, asks the advice of, yeah, because he's only a young man and he's got all these cronies that he grew up with, like, in school. And he says to them, what do you think I ought to do then? You know, what's your advice? And uh, their advice was this, tell them, my father scourged with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So that was their advice to him and he took it. 
So he said, no, he said, rather than giving you a less harsh regime, I'm going to make it harder. So you've got a worse time coming now. Well, I mean, this is the foolishness of youth, isn't it? But nevertheless, you know, that's, that's exactly what he did. That is what he told the people. And so therefore, when the people heard that, the, you know, all the tribes, they said, right, if that's what he's going to be like, then we forsake the line of David. And the only tribe that remained loyal to Rehoboam now is Judah. All the other tribes say, right, that's it, we've had it. And they seceded. I.e., they said, we're leaving the nation, that is it. Don't expect our loyalty, so you're not going to get it at all. And a bit later, um, Rehoboam, with um, a comrade of his called Adoniram, went out on a conscription drive. You know, I to say, right, we want to conscript false labour and soldiers and stuff like that. And they headed up north to conscript. And what happened was, is that Adoniram, the bloke who went with him, was stoned to death by the people, and Rehoboam narrowly escaped with his life, and he fled back to Jerusalem. And he kind of realises that, right, up north, that's it. I can't go back there again. So what happens now is that the northern part of the kingdom, Israel, now makes Jeroboam their king. So the northern kingdom say, right, that's it, Rehoboam, we're now having nothing to do with you, and they made Jeroboam their king. They said, we are now a separate nation. We are the nation of Israel. You're the nation of Judah, fine, we're the nation of Israel. That's it, there's a divide. We're separate countries. And, um, and Rehoboam got the ump about this and decided it was time for civil war. But a prophet called Shemaiah is sent by God into the situation, and he kind of speaks to both, both kingdoms. And he manages to get them to see that to have civil war would be absolutely pointless and daft. So civil war is averted. But what we've got now is the north-south split. We've got Israel, the north of the kingdom. Israel. And we've got Judah, the south of the kingdom. Judah. Now, two separate nations with two separate kings. Judah being the one in the messianic line. And uh, the dividing line, now, do you remember when we did, uh, you know, the allotment of the tribes, you know, and we did our kind of map, that if the north of the promised land is up, or up near Croma, all right, on the north Norfolk coast, and the bottom of it down the south is Worthing, all right, and Jerusalem is kind of like where the city of London is, you know, like the actual square mile like, okay. Then the dividing line between the North and the South Kingdom here runs a few miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital of the South. So basically what you've got, Hartford just up the road, if you go from Hartford and just go west across the South End, that was the dividing line. All right? Oh, well, Clacton rather, not South End. That was the dividing line. That was the, the you know, where the North and, and the South met. And, um, you know, so, so Hartford, south of Hartford was Judah, and north of Hartford was um, Israel. And uh, so Jeroboam, who's, who's the king up in the Northern Kingdom, he, he settled in Shechem and uh, ruled from there. Shechem just being up, like, you know, just north of, of Cambridge. Now, Jeroboam, that's right, he's the one, he's the new, he's the king of the northern, you know, the north. He gets paranoid. 
because the people were still going to worship in Jerusalem, all right? even though they were a different, you know, separate nation, they were still travelling south to worship. And he got paranoid, and he thinks, now if my people keep going down there to worship, they're going to give their allegiance back to Rehoboam, and they're going to kill me. So he gets paranoid, as leaders of, you know, often do. And um, now, thus far, you might be forgiven for thinking that this Jeroboam was a goodie, like because God had appointed, you know, Tony was going to be the leader. But no, remember, this split of the nation was God's judgment. And you're going to see that Jeroboam wasn't a goodie at all. And what he decides to do to keep the allegiance of his people, to prevent them going down to Jerusalem to worship, what he does is he makes two golden calves, he puts one up at the north of his kingdom, that's around Cromer, tribe of Dan, and, um, and then he puts one in Bethel, right the south of the land, that's Hartford, just on the border of where it becomes Judah, alright, and he has them worship them instead of the Lord. And what he does, or it's not a quite as straightforward that he has the people worship them instead of the Lord, but he has them worship the Lord via these golden calves. And what Jeroboam actually does is that he creates his own hotchpotch religion and makes it the official religion of the north of Israel. So it's kind of, it's largely Judaism, but he's put his own elements in it, so he creates his own religion to keep the, the people kind of uh, loyal to him. And, uh, and, and of course, in doing that, he, he, he incurs God's wrath, uh, you know, sort of, um, whose any blessing he had is now forfeited completely, and, and, and the Lord now moves in to, uh, to judge him. And in, in chapter 13, the Lord dispatches a, a prophet from Judah, the south, to go up to Jeremiah to deliver a prophecy to him. And the prophecy is that in the future, a king called Josiah, who would be from the southern kingdom, would sacrifice the priests of the false religion that Jeroboam has just inaugurated. So it's a prophecy that eventually a king from the south is going to judge this religion that you have now started. And, um, you know, he, he, he was kind of went to... to Bethel at the southern altar, and uh, you know, sort of, um, he was actually there doing his his sacrifices and stuff like that. And so this prophet goes to Jeroboam, and here's Jeroboam at the altar doing his bit, and uh, you know, pronounces this rebuke from the Lord. And uh, Jeroboam instantly becomes angry, and 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 holds out his hand in the direction of the prophet as a gesture to his men to seize the prophet and kill him. But as he did that, his hand shriveled up, and the altar split in two. And so Jeremiah very much realised that God was with that prophet, and don't mess with him. And so Jeremiah asked him to intercede for his hand. And as the prophet did so, Jeremiah's hand was healed. And he calmed down a bit, and uh, you know, said to the prophet, well, okay, I take on board the rebuke, blah, blah, blah and, uh, you know, sort of like, come and stay with me and eat and drink. Now, this prophet, we're not told his name, he'd been instructed by the Lord that he was to go into Israel, deliver the message, he wasn't to eat or drink there, and then he was to go home. But he wasn't to eat and drink in Israel at all, because it was only just across the border. And, um, and so he didn't accept Jeroboam's invitation to stay for tea and headed straight back home. 
But he then disobeyed the Lord when the Lord tested him through another prophet. And this other prophet claimed to have been sent by the Lord to tell him, no, forget what the Lord told you earlier, he wants you to come back for me, you know, with me to have tea now. And so this prophet does that. And as a result of that, the Lord judges him. And then when he leaves that prophet's house, he's attacked by a lion and killed. And the prophet in the northern kingdom, you know, buries him and gives him honours. But the point was, that all sounds a bit weird, but that prophet had instructions from God that he wasn't to eat in the north. And he disobeyed the Lord and he was judged accordingly. And remember, the Lord doesn't change his mind. If the Lord, you know, gives guidance, he doesn't then, oh, I've changed my mind, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, you know, that, that prophet is eaten by a lion for disobeying what the Lord said about not eating when he was um, in the northern kingdom. Um, but after all that, the main point is Jeroboam didn't actually repent. His hand is sealed, but he didn't repent. He carried on with his religion and he strengthened it. And anyone who wanted to be a priest, he was happy to make a priest. Oh, you want to be a priest in my religion? I'll make you a priest. So it went from, from you know, bad to worse. Now, in chapter 14, by now Jeroboam's got a son called Abijah. And Abijah becomes ill. So Jeroboam sends his wife to... Um, uh, to Ahijah the prophet. Now, Ahijah the prophet was the guy who originally told Jeroboam that he was going to leave the, you know, lead the northern confederacy. So, what Jeroboam does is he gets his wife to disguise herself so Ahijah doesn't recognise who she is, and Ahijah was blind by now anyway, but to see if she could find out from him as a prophet what was going to happen to the boy. And, um, but when she got there, the prophet, Ahijah, was expecting her. You know, and he says, well, I know I'm blind and I know you're disguised, but I knew that you were coming and the boy's going to die. Because God's judgment is on Jeroboam. So, so you know, she is told that. And uh, so, so she went home. Oh, yeah, and also he tells her, and the descendants of Jeroboam, all your, the son is going to die and all your descendants are going to be cut off by the Lord. This is the judgment for what you've done. And so she goes home to tell Jeroboam. And as she gets there, the son dies. And, um, and then we're told that Jeroboam ruled over Israel, the northern kingdom, for 22 years, and then he died. And then he was succeeded as king by another son he had called Nadab. Now, at this point, all right, we now start hopping from north to south because the history, the concurrent history of both kingdoms is is dealt with at the same time in the Bible. So, at this point, we do a meanwhile back in Judah, and now the Bible takes us to tell us what's happening in Judah, all right? So we've had Jeroboam, all right, his reign up in the north, and his eldest son died, but now he's died, and Nadab, his son, is on the throne. But meanwhile, back in Judah, all right, and we go back to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, all right, you know, sort of, so this is the son of Solomon in Judah, all right. He has fallen into idolatry as well with Judah. So now the north and the south are both into idolatry, all right. And, um, and what happens is that he is, you know, the south is attacked by the Egyptians and they strip the temple. Now this is one generation after God moved in the temple. I mean, you know, Solomon is dead. God moved in the temple in all his glory in Solomon's age. 
uh, day. Now his son Rehoboam is on the throne. The Egyptians have gone in, they've stripped the temple. And Solomon was the richest man in the world. At this point, Rehoboam, when he redoes the temple, he can only replace with bronze all the things that were gold. The economy is just it's called dead, you know, I mean, because God's judgment is on the land. So it's a vastly different story as well. And he kept having wars with Jeroboam in the north, so there's a little bit of civil war going on. And, uh, but he reigned for seven years, and, uh, and, you know, he was 41 when he commenced his reign. He reigned for seven years, and he died and was succeeded by his son, Abijah. Coincidentally, the name of Jeroboam's son who had died, all right. But now Rehoboam in the south, he took over from Solomon, Solomon's son. He has reigned for seven years and uh, now he's died and his son Abijah is um, ruling in his stead. Now we go to chapter 15 and we're staying now down in Judah, all right. And Rehoboam's son Abijah becomes king, all right. And um, he was as bad as his father, and he, he kept wars going with the northern kingdom. And remember that when he became king, Jeroboam was still king in the north, because Jeroboam in the north was king for a lot longer than Rehoboam was in the south. And uh, so they have various wars. But Abijah only lasted for three years, so he didn't reign for very long. And he died, and he was succeeded by his son Asa. Now Asa, and we're still down in Judah, so Solomon, then Rehoboam, now Asa, alright, so Asa is Solomon's grandson. He reigns in Judah for 41 years, and he followed the Lord. Now the north attacked, years later when a bloke called Basha was king in Israel, they attacked him, but he, he won, alright, because the Lord was with him. And, uh, and when he died, he was succeeded by his son called Jehoshaphat. Now there's a name you'll know, be familiar with, we'll be back to him slightly later. Meanwhile, back in Israel, see, now we go back and catch up what's happening in Israel. Remember, Israel, the last we saw is that Jeroboam's son Nadab was king. Do you remember Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, his son Nadab took over. Well, he reigned in the northern kingdom for two years. And he, he did evil. I mean, he was as bad as his father. The Lord didn't bless him at all. And he was assassinated by a guy called Barsha. And Barsha not only assassinated him, but killed all of Jeremiah's remaining descendants. And that fulfilled the earlier prophecy of Ahijah, where the, all Jeroboam's descendants would be cut off because of his idolatry. And uh, Basha reigned over Israel for 24 years, doing evil in the sight of the Lord the whole while. Now, chapter 16, and we're continuing with um, the northern kingdom. And uh, a, a prophet called Jehu uh, comes to see Basha and pronounces a judgment against his descendants and says, God is going to judge your descendants. And uh, Basha dies and was succeeded by his son Elah. Um, Elah reigned in Israel north for two years, so he lasted, and uh, he was murdered whilst he was drunk by a bloke called Zimri, and uh, killed his whole family, so that fulfilled 
the prophecy of the prophet Jehu, alright? So Zimri kills Elah and his whole family while Elah was drunk. And um, he reigned, alright, for a week. <laughs> so Zimri <laughs> has assassinated, you know, <laughs> Elah and become king. Now Zimri was king for a week and the army murdered him and they put their chief, Omri, made him king um, instead. And uh, Omni, he, he reigned for 12 years, but there was a challenge from a bloke called Tibni, who tried to usurp the, the throne, but Omri killed him. And um, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he was a dreadful king. And, um, and he, was, he eventually died, and he was succeeded by his son Ahab, which should also be a name that means something to you. So Ahab now sets up, he's reigning, this is in Israel, the north, all right, not Judah in the south. Jehoshaphat is reigning in the south now. This is Judah in the north. And uh, Ahab now reigns over the north Israel from Samaria, which now becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. So the capital of the northern kingdom is now Samaria. And the capital of Judah, the south, was always Jerusalem, obviously. And Ahab is reigning over Israel now uh, from Samaria, and, and he reigned for 22 years. And the Bible's verdict on him is that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, he married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal. And Ethbaal was the king of Sidon, all right, and the king of Sidon was the ultimate high priest in Baal worship, hence his name, Eth Baal. Ahab marries his daughter, who was the high priestess of Baal worship. So now, Baal worship becomes really ingrained in the life of Israel. And it's at this point that Jericho is rebuilt. And you'll remember, after Joshua destroyed Jericho, he pronounced a, a curse on it. Uh, anyone who rebuilds Jericho will do so at the expense of the life of their sons. And in the time of Ahab, a bloke called Hiel of Bethel rebuilds Jericho. He does that, and his oldest son, Abiram, dies, and his youngest son, Segub, dies. You know, God's judgment on him for rebuilding Jericho. And, uh, you know, so it's a kind of a, a, a really bad scene now up in Israel. Jehoshaphat, you remember in the south, is faithful to the Lord. So Judah is being good at the moment. They're following the Lord. But up in Israel, it has just gone from bad to worse to absolutely atrocious. And in chapter 17, on the scene pops Elijah. Now, obviously, we've done this, haven't we, in the Elijah series, but obviously we've got to whip through it because it's um, part of what we're doing. So, Elijah is sent to Ahab to tell him that God's judgment is on him because of the Baal worship and that there was going to come a time of drought, just over three years of, of, of drought, because of God's judgment on the Baal worship. And um, having done that, Elijah, you'll remember God takes him down to Brook Cherith and he's fed by the ravens, and he drinks water from uh, the brook. And, um, and then he's taken from there, and he goes to, to um, a place called Zarephath. And, I mean, we saw all the symbolism of this, didn't we? Zarephath means refining, and blah, blah, blah. I can't go into that now. But uh, he's then cared for by a widow who's a Gentile, her and her son, and the Lord provides for them with a jar of flour and a cruise of oil that never run out. And, um, 
And then in chapter 17, her son dies. And you'll remember that the son is raised from the dead uh, through the prayers of Elijah. And uh, again, for all the significance of this, the Elijah series obviously is there in the expository series when we did it. Now, chapter 18, um, you remember that um, Elijah finds Obadiah. And uh, Obadiah had hidden prophets in a cave and was caring for them. So Obadiah was a believer, but a bit of a pessimist. And, um, and, and he was one of Ahab's top men. And Elijah says, well, look, will you go and bring Ahab? Because I want to see him. And you remember Obadiah sort of says, oh, goodness, now if I do that, the spirit of the Lord will whisk you away and, and I'll be in trouble because I've gone, you know. And he was a real kind of, had a job believing that the Lord loved him, you know, in every way. But nevertheless, he was a faithful, faithful believer. But he goes and gets Ahab and brings him and Elijah is still there. And, and you know, this is when Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel, those, those great words. And, and, and here, Elijah challenges him to the contest on... Um, Mount Carmel and uh, you know says well look you know sort of like the prophets of Baal versus me and <coughs> if Baal is God well prove it or I'll prove you that God is God you know and so he challenges him to this Mount Carmel contest and it's uh, arranged and uh, so the idea being that the prophets of Baal build an altar and call on Baal to answer by fire and then Elijah does and Elijah says well the true God he'll answer won't he Remember, he says to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Because the great danger of the idolatry in Israel at this time, it wasn't that the people totally worshipped Baal and had totally forsaken the Lord. The point was, and remember, Jeroboam, when the northern kingdom was formed, he came up with a mishmash religion. It had a bit of Judaism in it. And it was the point that they were a bit for the Lord and a bit for Baal. It wasn't that they were 100% against the Lord. They were wishy-washy compromising. And Elijah said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? One of the reasons that so many Christians, spiritually speaking, are just limping is because they've got so many opinions, different opinions, rather than just going with the word of God without compromise. And so God says, look, uh, sorry, Elijah says, look, you've got to make your mind up, God or Baal. And of course, the prophets of Baal cry out to Baal and he doesn't answer. <clears throat> and then the Lord answers Elijah's prayer by fire and consumes the altar. Then Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal and then the people repent and then eventually the drought ends and, um, and it rains. Now in chapter 19, Jezebel hears what's happened and uh, she sends a death threat to Elijah who gets so frightened that he runs, he just folds up now, he caves in and he, he runs away and he, become, he gets so depressed he becomes suicidal. And you'll remember that an angel feeds him and gets, you know, has him sleep, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then eventually Elijah travels to Horeb. And you remember the Lord appeared to him. He came to the mouth of the cave and there was the earthquake, the wind and the fire. And, uh, but the Lord wasn't in any of them. And then Elijah heard a still small voice and the Lord was in the still small voice. And the Lord kind of reassured him, built him up because he was a broken man. He was a, his faith had caved in and the Lord, you know, kind of like restores him. And he's told to anoint Hazael, 
as a king over Aram. Now, Aram was Damascus in Syria. Uh, he's told to anoint Jehu as king over Israel and to anoint Elisha as his successor. And so what he does at this point is he goes and anoints Elisha so that he's got someone to carry on um, with his work when he eventually goes to be with the Lord. Now, in chapter 20, uh, slightly different, um, you know, sort of thing going on here. Uh, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, attacks Israel. And uh, a prophet is sent to Ahab uh, in, in Samaria, because uh, Ben-Hadad of Aram is sieging Samaria. And uh, a prophet tells Ahab that the Lord is going to deliver him. So the Lord really being merciful there. And um, so eventually Israel gets the victory, and Ahab beats Ben-Hadad's army, but he lets Ben-Hadad go, which he shouldn't have done. He should have killed him because uh, he was a Canaanite. And um, so then another prophet comes to Ahab and says, because you let him go, you know, I pronounce the sin unto death. You're going to die for your sins. Then uh, in chapter 21, uh, Ahab wants uh, Naboth's vineyard it's a lovely vineyard that this bloke called Naboth has. Naboth, lovely bloke, believer, but Naboth won't sell because it had been in his family for generations. So Jezebel persuades um, Ahab to, to have Naboth killed. And what she does is she gets people to lie about Naboth having committed various crimes that he hadn't committed at all. And uh, she sets him up in a false trial, accused of blasphemy, and has him stoned to death. And once that happens, then Ahab is able to, to, to take his vineyard, which is the kind of people that they were. Elijah now goes to Ahab and pronounces judgment on him and Jezebel's death. And says, right, Jezebel is going to die as well. It's not, not just going to be you who's going to die. Jezebel is going to die and all your descendants are going to be cut off. That is God's judgment because of what you've done to Naboth. And what happens was, is that now Ahab does a big repentance thing. And as a result of that, God says, right, you, it wasn't very deep repentance, but it was a bit of repentance. And God says, right, okay, I will delay this disaster until after you've died, so that you won't see Jezebel killed and you won't see all your descendants cut off. Now, in chapter 22, uh, you have a, a treaty, a partnership emerging between Ahab and old Jehoshaphat down in Judah in the south. Now, Jehoshaphat's a goodie. He was a believer. And, um, and so what they do is that they form an alliance to attack uh, Aram and take Ramoth-Gilead back. Now, Ramoth-Gilead belonged to Israel, but Aram, or Syria, as it later became known, had nicked it. So they form this allegiance to go and get it back. And uh, Jehoshaphat suggests that they inquire of prophets to find out what God's will is. So what Jehoshaphat is saying, look, I think this is a really good idea, yeah, to, to, to go and get Ramoth-Gilead back off of Syria. They've nicked it from you in Israel. It is yours. Let's go get it back. That sounds good. But Jehoshaphat, being faithful to the Lord, as opposed to Ahab, who isn't, Jehoshaphat says, look, you know, we've got to, um, you know, find out what the Lord's will is. What do the prophets say? So Ahab goes and gets loads of prophets around, you know, sort of like rent a profit, really. And they all proclaim victory. They say, yes, you know, God's going to give Ahab great victory. And, uh, and Jehoshaphat, he presses a bit further. And, uh, and he says, have you got any more prophets around? I mean, this is good, what I'm hearing, you know, this is encouraging. But have you got any more prophets around? 
And it's at that point that Ahab owns up to the fact that there was another prophet that he knew of in Israel, a bloke called Micaiah. And so, you know, sort of, um, you know, Joshua says, well, right, okay, get him, where is he? And Ahab says, well, he's in my dungeons. <laughs> and, and the reason Micaiah was in the dungeons was, as Ahab explains, that he never prophesied well for me. So the point was, Micaiah, when Ahab wanted prophecies, Micaiah would bring prophecies of judgment from the Lord. Ahab didn't want to hear them, so he kept Micaiah locked up because he didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so what happens is that Joshua says, well, bring him here, we've got to hear what, you know, what the Lord might say through him. So Micaiah is brought out of the dungeons and, uh, you know, and Ahab said, okay, Micaiah, prophesy. You know, what's, what's going to happen if I go against Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says, you're going to be fine, the Lord's going to give you a great victory. And Ahab demands that he tells him the truth. He knows that he's being sarcastic, he's winding him up. And, uh, and he says, no, look, you know, should we start again? And so Micaiah says, yeah, all right. He says, if you go into battle, you're going to die. And Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, see what I mean? <laughs> and throws him back into jail. And, uh, but not before Jehoshaphat's other prophets have stepped forward and beaten him up a bit and said sort of like, you know, whence did the spirit of the Lord depart from us to you, you see. So Micaiah ends up back in the dungeons because Ahab didn't like what he said. But Ahab knew that he was the true prophet and all the others were the false prophets. A little bit of the woe unto you when all men think well of you there, isn't there, really? And, um, you know, so, I mean, the point is from this, Jehoshaphat agrees to go into the battle. He's happy that God would give them deliverance in regards that they get Ramoth Gilead back. But this prediction of this judgment, the sin unto death that's coming on to Ahab, is um, still coming through very much in the prophecies of Micaiah. So Micaiah now gets uh, thrown back into, um, into jail. And so they go into the battle, and uh, Ahab disguises himself, so he doesn't look like Ahab. So it's quite common in battles like that, that if you could kill the king, that was a, a good strategic advantage. So Ahab quite deliberately, as it were, dresses down. So he just looks like an ordinary soldier, or something like that. But nevertheless, he's, he's killed. He dies in that battle. And um, Jehoshaphat was fine. They won the battle, they retrieved Ramoth Gilead, but now Ahab, as prophesied on numerous occasions, he dies in that battle, the sin unto death. And, um, and Jehoshaphat was absolutely fine. And um, Ahab is buried in Samaria by Israel, you know, the, the capital of Israel. Ahab is buried there, and, and he's succeeded by his son Ahaziah. Then you get um, a few details about old Jehoshaphat, and we'll see more about Jehoshaphat when we come on to do 1 and 2 Chronicles. And, um, and the details that we're given here is that he was the son of Asa, and, and he ruled Judah for 25 years from the age of 35, and he followed the Lord, he was faithful. And when he died, 
he was succeeded by his son Jehoram. So what we've got now is that um, the Ahab in Israel dies, he is succeeded by his son Ahaziah. Jehoshaphat, he lived a good few years more, but when he died down in the south, he was succeeded by his son Jehoram. But uh, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, is now reigning in Israel, and uh, he reigned for two years, and he was evil like his father Ahab, and he served Baal as well. Now, that's, that's where one, chronic, uh, 1 Kings ends. We, we continue with this history up and down, up in the south, uh, sorry, up in the north, and then back down in the south, all right? But are you getting the flow now of what's happening? We're seeing we've got the two kingdoms. After the reign of Solomon, in the lifetime, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came to the throne, there was one kingdom. And it was during that time that Jeroboam started a new kingdom up in the north. So we now have, like Israel, the Jews in the Promised Land, but rather than being under one king, as they were with King, Dave, well, king Saul, King David and Solomon, now, from the time of Solomon's son onwards, there are two kingdoms. There's Israel, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes, and in the south, there's Judah. Obviously, Levi, weren't a, they were a tribe, but they didn't have any inheritance in the land. They were all over the place because they were the priests and the assistants to the priests. So what we've got now is that Israel, or the nation, has broken down into two separate nations, the north and the south. But it's the southern one, Judah, that is continuing the messianic line, the, the family of David. But as we're seeing, I mean, the north, as we're going to see, turns out overall worse than the south. But the south, Judah, is by and large as bad as Israel. And next time, as we carry on doing the rest of their history, we'll actually see that it gets to the point where not only is the north get so bad that they're carted off into captivity, so bang, there go them. But a hundred years after that, the South end up carted off into captivity as well. So it actually ends up with no Israel in the land at all. And I just remind you, back to what we saw um, during the time of Samuel, that when the people asked for a king, the Lord's advice for them was, no, don't, don't have a king. But they insisted. And you remember God said, all right, I'll give you a king, but don't moan to me when you've got them. And this is why. Because although there were some good kings, most of them were absolutely terrible. And because they were kings, their evil could have so much greater effect on the people than if they hadn't had a monarchical structure. And so we really see here that Israel, well, the, the North and the South are paying the price for having wanted kings rather than carrying on as they are with God ruling them through the, inter through the intervention of judges and prophets, etc., etc. So then, we've come up to Ahab and the time of Elijah and Ahab in the North. He's dead now. His son Ahaziah is taking over. We'll see the rest of that 
next time the rest of the ministry of Elijah and then down in the south we've got Jehoshaphat still ruling Ahab dies Ahaziah takes over but Jehoshaphat his reign carries on in the south for a good few years after that so next time two kings and we'll carry on with um, the story and um, it, it's getting a bit complicated now I know jumping about up in the south uh, in the north down to the south meanwhile in Judah then up in Israel but next time it's going to get even worse so so we're we're gonna keep our thinking caps on and I'm just going to try and make it as uh, as easy to grasp as uh, I can so we'll we'll continue with that next time